0: Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN. This week, we're going over UFC Vegas 72, headlined by a short-notice bantamweight belt, which tacks on an extra two rounds as Song Yudong and Ricky Simone transition from fighting, supposed to be fighting on last week's co event to this weekend's main event after Armand Surukian was unable to secure a short-notice replacement after Hanato Moikano bowed out of their matchup a week ago or so. I believe it was but still a banger of a bantamweight matchup that we have in the main event slot here. Obviously Song coming off of a main event fight as well against Corey Sandhagen a couple months back. And Ricky Simone being propped up to finally break through in that bantamweight division with a big matchup here against Song Yudong. Great fights throughout this card. A lot of very intriguing matchups as well and some very intriguing debuts as well from some former regional MMA champions like Fernando Padilla and Jamie, Jamie Lynn Horth. Uh, fun, fun fights sprinkled out throughout the card, so I can't wait to break it down for you guys. As always, I want to quickly go over the uh, prior predictions before we get into the breakdowns here. Not the greatest showing for your boy on UFC Vegas seventy one, obviously the main event. Pavlovich going out there and still starching Curtis Blades. I am probably never trusting Curtis Blades again. Although I'll say this. I wasn't very invested in that matchup to begin with, more so just from a prediction standpoint, I was very much let down by him. Even more let down was Mr. Francis Marshall, who was my lock of the night prediction that night. I really expected him to use his grappling a little bit earlier, and I get it. It was much harder for him considering the range and heat that William Gomez was throwing, but it showed as soon as he believed in himself that he can go out there and get the takedown, he would be able to get it, establish that dominant position, and possibly even work for a submission like he did in that third round. I just wish he got to it a little bit sooner. It is what it is. I trusted a young kid in his in this game. And I got burned for it. Uh, We did end up going 3-0 on the rest of the Lock of the Night predictions for that weekend. As in Bellator, we had uh, Sharaf Davlat Murdov, as well as Kai Kamaka. And then for the LFA, we had the under one and a half in the Jackson McVay fight, which hit with so much ease, it wasn't even funny. But uh, we go 3-1 on Lock of the Night predictions. We go 2-2 on Dog of the Night predictions. For the UFC, it ended up hitting with Brady Hestand, pulling off a tremendous comeback in the third round of their matchup. Again, another fighter that I was unimpressed with his ability to get the fight to the ground, but he finally did it in that third round when both guys seemed like they were uh, pretty much just operating on fumes. Luckily, it was Brady Hestand who was able to hit it into that next gear and get that eventual finish. I will admit, though. It probably was a little bit of a quick stoppage considering that Brady Heastan looked up at Jaron Vallel and that's probably what caused Vallel to be like, oh shit, this guy's eating shots. They might not be big shots, but he was eating shots. So maybe I should stop the fight because the guy is looking up at me like, hey, you want me to keep punching this guy? Good for Brady Heastan to end up getting that win and pulling off that finesse move on a referee, a veteran referee like Jaron Vallel. Uh, We go one and two on the other three uh, cards in terms of dog of the night predictions. The other underdog coming through was actually the under two and a half in the uh, first fight of the night on Bellator 295, which I can't recall the two. It was Kikuru versus... uh, Sure, sure, Kevich, I believe the guy's name was both strikers I was expecting a knockout to happen I thought it was going to be the Russian knocking out the Japanese fighter it ended up being the other way around regardless we still cashed the plus money on the under two and a half in that matchup uh, quick plugs here early odds analysis for was- analysis for UFC 288 will be dropping on Tuesday afternoon check the pinned comment below to get your early odds analysis on UFC 288 I'll be taking a quick look at the odds as where they stand right now, give you guys my pre-tape leans on where I'm at and then I'll give you guys obviously my final predictions either through the Patreon first or through the MMA Lockcast, which will end up coming out next Monday so check that out, link in the description below speaking of the Patreon that er, the, the extra content you'll be getting on there this week will be Cage Warriors 153 which goes down on Saturday afternoon as well so if you want to get some early day action, I got you covered on Cage Warriors which we've been doing pretty damn well on if I must say so myself make sure you guys check that out, it's on the Patreon link in the description below and lastly, I do drop an article for a website called GodzillaWins.com you'll find the link to those articles in the description below on Wednesdays I drop my main event article which I will update on Wednesday in the description below. And then on Thursdays, my three best moneyline bets as well. Um, you can find that on the Godzilla Ones article. Again, link will be in the description below. Make sure you guys check that out. All right, that's enough with the plugs. Let's get into the breakdowns. We got 12 fights to break down. Let's get right into it. Kicking things off in the women's bantamweight division, we got seven and two Haley Cowan going up against short notice newcomer 5-0 oh, Jamie Lynn Horth. Starting off on the Haley Cowan side, talk about bad luck. She's been scheduled for three fights now, including this one over the last three months. All well, the first two falling off. The first of which she fell ill the day before her fight. I believe that one was against Eileen Perez, and then they rebooked her the following month, uh, and uh, against Tamiris Vidal. And it was uh, Vidal who ended up falling sick. I believe the fight, the day of the fight, or the uh, day before the fight. But now here she is. Third time's a charm, hopefully, for her to finally make her UFC debut after she had earned her UFC contract through the contender series last season with a decision victory over Claudia Lecce. Now, I don't think anybody can say that it was an awe-inspiring performance that got her that UFC contract. However, Dana White, for some reason, is like, you know what, I just got this feeling that she deserves to be in the UFC and thus she got a UFC contract. I don't think her potential is really that high even though even before she made her professional MMA debut she had a lot of hype on her for some reason but she did not live up to it as she did manage to accrue a 6-2 and record on the regional scene before getting her shot on the contender series and she's been quite boring if I'm going to be honest. She really has just utilized her wrestling and her clinch game up against the cage rather than utilizing her footwork and her long striking from distance which i think would be much more effective and probably more pleasing to the general viewer going up against her this week in a short notice jamie lynn horth who you know the ufc just had to pick up to just finally give somebody that cowan can fight hopefully uh and hopefully they're both able to make the trip to the octagon horth won the LFA title back in December of 2021 and was scheduled to defend it back in December against former UFC fighter Sabina Mazzo. Unfortunately, I believe it was Mazo that was forced to pull out, and Horth was left without an opponent. Luckily, this opportunity came knocking a couple months later, and she was more than ready to take the shot. She was the flyweight champion, and she's obviously taken this fight at 135 pounds, but she was pretty big for that flyweight division, so I don't think that this would be too big of a jump up for her in terms of weight and size to take this short notice spot. She's a Canadian fighting out of the western side of Canada or at least the west coast and she fought for Battlefield Fight League which is one of the premier organizations on the west coast for Canada and she showcased a very aggressive grappling approach and just pure striking approach where she was able to finish all five of her professional MMA wins. She even holds two wins over Lupita Godinez back in 2017 on the amateur scene. However, Jamie Lynn Horth outsized her by 5 inches in height and another 5 inches on the reach. So uh, just as Godinez came up short against Luana Carolina, I'm sure that size had a lot to do in that matchup. But Horth is a very aggressive fighter who I saw grappling deficiencies from in her first fight that I was able to see. But two and a half years later, she put on a great performance against Cantuera uh, in a fight where she achieved the LFA flyweight title. Showcased good grappling, great aggression, good work on the ground, which eventually opened up that submission opportunity for her to win that LFA title. Now, the short notice aspect and the fact that Horth is going up a weight class here to take this fight gives me a little bit of pause because Haley Cowan is a very strong woman at this weight class, and that might be the difference maker in this fight against Horth. However, I believe the fighter that will be moving forward the most, doing more legitimate damage, and the fighter that has some pretty good chops herself will be the one who ends up getting her hand raised. And I think that's going to be JB Lynn Horth. I believe she has the skill set, I believe her defensive grappling has leveled up enough that she'll be able to thwart whatever clinching type of success that Cowan is looking to have in this matchup and then she'll be able to reverse it land her own damage land her own output and she may be even able to get this fight to the ground and pull off a submission of her own so I don't mind Cowan as, or sorry Horth at this pick and price and I don't mind a possible stab on her to win by decision either or sorry by submission either (laughs) Heading over to the men's bantamweight division, we got 24-14 Brian Boom Kelleher, who's going up against 10-4 Journey nuson Kicking things off on the Brian Kelleher side, he's coming off of two straight losses to Umar, Umar Nurmagomedov and Mario Bautista. Can we blame him? the guy was going up against very high level competition even his losses or his last four losses are coming against pretty high level guys and cody Stamen, ricky simone and then obviously the two aforementioned fighters but he's been very busy since the beginning of 2020 as he's had nine fights since the since january 2020 he hasn't taken longer than five months off in between fights there's even moments where you see him taking a fight a month after he had competed before that was the uh, hunter azure to cody Stamen layoff that he had there but since taking his loss to mario bautista back in june this is now the longest layoff we've seen him take in a very long time we're talking about a solid 10 months off from competition which at 36 years old is probably not a bad thing to do for Kelleher, especially considering the slump that he's currently on now he has the perfect matchup ahead of him this weekend to try to find a w and get back into the win column we know what brian Kelleher brings to the table but the fact that he has over 38 fights of experience under his belt just showcases the amount of experience and type of types of ways that he can go out there and win he has that big knockout power in his hands or he has that nasty guillotine choke that he caught O'Day Osborne in. But the last two wins on his record to Domingo Pollarte and Kevin Kroom, we saw a grapple heavy approach. In the Domingo Polarte fight, it only took him three takedowns to accrue a wealth of uh, control time that fight. It was over 30 or close to 13 minutes of control time that night. And then it was six takedowns against Kevin Croom, as well as six and a half minutes of control time in that fight that got him his hand raised. So we don't know what to expect from Kellerher whenever he goes out there and fights. It just depends on the stylistic approach that he or stylistic clash that he has with his opponent that upcoming fight. This weekend he's going up against Journey Newson, who is coming off a loss to Sergey Morozov in his last fight. Journey Newson has had a bit of a roller coaster of his a career over his last five fights in the UFC, where he's accrued a one three and one no contest record. It could easily be two and three for his UFC career. However, he had a uh, knock a quick knockout win overturned against Domingo Plarte due to a failed marijuana drug test that was taken before that matchup. Very unfortunate way to have your uh, quick victory um, snatched from you, but uh, that's just the way that it rolled for Jerny Newsom. He unfortunately came back to a quick knockout loss in his following matchup to Randy Costa, but managed to bounce back against Fernie Garcia in a very solid performance. He showcased a good consistency and barrage of uh, kicks throughout that fight. It really disrupted the pattern that Fernie Garcia was trying to get into, which allowed Journey Newsom to just continuously disrupt his movement disrupt his fluidity and just continue to put strikes out there i believe it was over 60 significant strikes that journey newson was able to land over the 15 minutes that that fight took place again he came up short against Sergey Morozov in his following matchup where Morozov landed six takedowns uh, throughout that fight. And it was a slow start for Morozov, but he managed to do the majority of his work in the second and third round where he was able to get four of his takedowns over those two rounds. But a crew close to five minutes of control time over those 10 minutes, which is why he eventually got his hand raised by decision that night. Newsom seemed pretty upset when that fight went to the judges' quarter cards, thinking that he did enough damage compared to the hugging that Morozov was doing, but that's not how the game works. Morozov was able to get his hand raised by combining control time and damage to outwork what Jerry Newsom was able to do in those last two rounds. Newsom BJJ Blackbelt, but you don't really see him trying to chase after the takedowns as it looks like he prefers to throw his kicks and his strikes from distance while staying mobile with his footwork. I'm not overly impressed because it doesn't seem like he throws with a whole lot of power, but he just wants to put out put out there, good consistency, and if he can stay at range, he normally will have his way with most opponents, but that was not the case against Hikaru Hamosh, Randy Costa, and Sergey Morozov. Let's see if he can change the tide this weekend against Brian Kelleher. This one is a little bit tough to call because I could see it going one of two ways. It could either be Journey Nusa just treading on the outside, throwing out his kicks there and just staying away from the big power of Kelleher, or Kelleher successfully closes that distance, puts his big shots on him and drags this fight to the ground. I don't believe in his ability to hold down Journey Newsom for long periods of time, but I'm hoping that the combination of control time and landing big shots on the feet will be enough for the judges to see the fight in his favor, but Newsom might have his number here in terms of being able to traverse that range well enough to stay away from all of that offense that Kelleher might be doing and then just chip away at him the way that he did to Fernie Garcia. Tough to have huge confidence on both either side, in my opinion, but I am going to go with the veteran here and hope for some veteran-type moves from my guy Brian Kelleher. So I'll go with Kelleher to win this fight by decision. Heading back to the women's bantamweight division, we got 8-3 Stephanie Egger going up against debutante 4-1 Irini Alexiva. Starting off on the Egger side, she managed to bounce back after that unfortunate loss to Mauro bueno Silva that is marred with controversy due to the phantom tap that she apparently tapped to uh, Buenosalva's armbar. But she managed to bounce back with a dominant performance against Eileen Perez back at UFC Paris in September where she was able to take that fight to the ground over and over again until she managed to sink in that rear naked choke in the dying seconds of the second round. Stephanie Yeager is a standout judoka who I believe even went to the Olympics for her judo but you see that on full display in all of her fights. She's able to ground her opponents with slick trips and throws and then eventually do very solid work from on top whether it's getting a TKO ground and pound victory over Shanna Young or locking up a submission like she did against Jessica Rose Clark and Eileen Perez. She's very dominant from those positions, and the only people that have been able to give her trouble, at least in the UFC, were Tracy Cortez, who is a better wrestler and was able to keep that fight upright, or Myro Bueno Silva, who was just slick enough to latch onto that armbar. Again, did Edgar tap? Who knows? We will never find out because there's just never a good enough angle to figure out whether it was a tap or not. But Edgar... Her striking still needs a lot of work, but given the fact that she's very strong at this weight class and can normally drag opponents to the ground with such ease, she might just have to rely on her judo and her wrestling to get most of her victories at this point in her career. Her opponent this weekend is a very odd signing from the uh, UFC brass considering the fact that she's coming off of a fight in Bellator that she won back in 2021 and it was just a one fight winning streak obviously because she lost her fight before that and also she missed weight or at least the last two times um She weighed in at 129 pounds for a flyweight belt. Obviously, she takes this one at bantamweight, so hopefully she doesn't have any issues making weight, but she seems to struggle in terms of the weight-cutting aspect of MMA. In terms of her fighting style, she comes from a judo background as well, and she more often than not looks to drag her opponents to the ground and try to do decent damage from on top. cardio looks a little bit sketchy as it looks like she really muscles her way into these positions and then her striking she utilizes a lot of footwork from the outside blitzes forward when she sees an opening lands some big shots and either gets back out into distance or latches onto her opponent and drags them to the ground however i just don't know how effective it's going to be at this stage in her career or at least at this level now that she's a part of the ufc roster she's 32 years old only five fights under her belt still seems very raw to me I don't know how she's gonna fare in that in the UFC at this point, but maybe the UFC sees something that we just don't see. We'll find out this weekend. I could be off here, but I feel like Alex Siva is going to be in over ahead in this matchup. This is a huge step up in competition compared to what she was fighting on the regional scene and her one fight in Bellator, not to mention the layoff that she's coming off of and going up a weight class against a much stronger Stephanie Eger. I think this is going to be a rough matchup for her. Look for Egger to utilize her judo almost immediately, get this fight to the ground, dominate from on top, and more than likely end up finding a finish as well. So I'll be looking at Eger. I know she's chalky in this matchup but her inside the distance number should be good enough that we could possibly target that and extract some value out of this matchup so give me stephanie egger inside the distance i'm gonna say i'm gonna say tko i think she gets that full mount starts raining down big shots if alexiva doesn't end up giving up her back she'll continue to eat elbows and the referee will be forced to step in give me stephanie Eger via ground and pound Next up, we got welterweights going at it here as we have 6-0 Josh Quinlan taking on short notice replacement 7-1 Trey Waters. Starting off on the Josh Quinlan side, who has a squeaky clean 6-0 record, possibly could be 7-0, but unfortunately he tested positive for his 2021 performance on the contender series, which obviously ended up earning him his UFC contract, but that was a very solid win over Logan Urban but that got changed to a no contest for obvious reasons. He finally made his UFC debut back in August in San Diego, where he put the lights out of Jason Witt with a beautiful left hook. It was not without a little bit of adversity, as Jason Witt did manage to land a takedown early in that fight, but Josh Quinlan did a very good job in terms of getting right back to his feet, and it was the next big action which allowed him to get that knockout over Jason Witt. Josh Quinlan is a BJJ black belt and one of the very few fighters to ever make it to the UFC from the infamous wand fight team from Las Vegas, Nevada. However... That team is no more, at least that name is no more as Vandele has cut ties with that team and now I believe they've renamed it to Milestone Mixed Martial Arts. So I'm very intrigued to see if there's anybody else that's going to come out of that camp, especially considering we have high-level gyms like Extreme Couture and Syndicate MMA, which still call Las Vegas home. But Josh Quinlan seems like a solid prospect with a lot of explosivity, a lot of power, and he seems very athletic too. We don't often see his BJJ black belt on display because he loves knocking people's heads into the fifth row, but we'll see if he can really start to round out the rest of his game or at least showcase the rest of his game now that he's fully in the UFC. On the flip side with Trey Waters who's making a very quick turnaround here. Two weeks ago, he earned the uh, welterweight title for the LFA, where he was getting touched up pretty much for about six minutes or seven minutes against Jalen Fuller until he was able to uncork a beautiful punch to knock Jalen Fuller clean out, which allowed him to win that LFA welterweight title. It was a very unordinary uh, performance from Trey Waters, who normally has a very big height and reach advantage over his opponents, especially standing at six foot five at welterweight. He's able to utilize his jab, keep his opponents at bay, and just touch them up with beautiful one-twos down the middle, which is often why you don't see him get touched up by his opponents often. Most people will recognize him from the last season of the Contender series where he took a short notice spot against Gabriel Bonfin and he made a pretty good account of himself for the first two minutes of that fight before Bonfin was able to hurt him and then eventually get that Von Flu choke and try to take that on home with him. Trey Waters was also very close to being defeated in his fight prior to that but it was a beautifully timed knee he was able to land with less than 20 seconds left in the fight which allowed him to get his hand raised over Benjamin Bennett. But Trey Waters, if he's able to maintain his distance, utilize his footwork, and keep his jab out there, he's going to be a very difficult opponent to deal with for a lot of fighters. Again, given his stature at this weight class, standing at six foot five. Trey Waters is a great addition to the UFC roster however I think he's going to struggle with the big power coming his way from Josh Quinlan. Quinlan obviously huge huge power throughout we've, throughout his career that's what we've seen but this might be a fight where we could also see him utilize his grappling. He might have a little bit of trouble trying to get in on the guy that's 5 foot uh, inches taller than him or a guy that has uh, 6 or 7 inches in reach on him but I believe in his in his explosivity, I believe in his speed and I believe in his ability to get to the target and either with a big punch or dragging this fight to the ground doing good enough dom- damage from that top position if he's done the tape on trey waters he will see that trey can be nullified up against the cage and that he can be taken down and taken advantage of on the mat as well it's time that josh quinn then brings out his bjj black belt puts it to good use and gets the finish over waters I might look for that sub prop. I haven't seen exactly what it's at. I'm assuming it might be a damn good number considering the fact that people believe that Quinlan might only be a knockout puncher. This might be the spot similar to when Miguel Baeza submitted uh, to Kashi Sato back in the day. We got like plus 1,300 on his sub line. Maybe we could get a similar number, maybe not plus 1,300, maybe plus 800, plus 700 on Quinlan by sub, but I feel like that would be a solid spot to target, especially if Quinlan sees the deficiencies in Waters' game in the ground and can take advantage of that. But regardless, I'm going to go Josh Quinlan, Quinlan by knockout, again, uh, sorry Quinlan inside the distance as of this recording there are no odds on this fight yet because it was just announced earlier today um, but I'm expecting Quinlan to be a big favorite here but I'm going to target the inside the distance and submission lines to try to get the best value from this matchup give me Quinlan round one submission heading on down to the men's flyweight division we got 14 four and one Cody Durden going up against 13 and five Charles Johnson Starting off on the Cody Durden side, he's coming off a two-fight winning streak where he was first able to knock out J.P. Bays in the first round of their matchup and then secondly pull off the upside against short-notice Carlos Mota with a dominant wrestling approach that night. Cody Durden has a wrestling tattoo on his back so you would assume that he likes to uh, pursue that wrestle heavy approach in most of his fights he's been quite dominant with it in certain matchups and other matchups he's been uh, getting caught in submissions like he did against Jimmy Flick and Mohamed Mokaev but sitting at a 3-2-1 two, two record in the UFC through six fights, Cody Durden seems like he could end up being a mainstay in the flyweight division, given his toughness, given his wrestling accolades, and given his improving striking abilities. He trains out of the Atlanta American Top Team branch, which shows, sees him training alongside the likes of Diego and Douglas Lima. You see those guys more often than not in his corner, especially during his regional run up the ranks. He's a very solid fighter with a good wrestling game, but if he can't get his wrestling going, we'll have to see his striking continue to improve if he wants to have success at this level of mixed martial arts. Switching on over to his opponent, Charles Johnson, this man is staying very busy. This is going to be his third fight in four months. This is, I believe he'll be the first UFC fighter to have three, fun, three fights in the 2023 calendar year. He picked up and started off his year with a big win over Jimmy Flick when he was able to knock him out, I believe, in the second round of their fight but followed that up with an unfortunate loss against O'Day Osborne back in February. That was a matchup where it seemed like he was a little bit too gun-shy. I don't know if it was the length or unorthodox movement of Osborne that caused Johnson some hesitancy, but it seemed like there were plenty of opportunities for him to get ahead of Osborne, especially considering that Johnson looked like he had the better gas tank. He just couldn't end up pulling the trigger, allowing Osborne to slowly get away in that matchup and end up winning that fight by decision. Johnson, at his best, utilizes his footwork, hand speed, and combinations to touch up his opponents from distance and utilize good takedown defense to keep fights in the upright position. We saw him utilize that great takedown defense against Mohamed Wakayev. Unfortunately, he was on the defensive the entire time that matchup and was unable to get off any uh, damage of his own, which is why he ended up losing it by decision. The former LFA flyweight champion hopes to give back onto the winning or into the win column this weekend, especially after that unfortunate performance against O'Day Osborne. I'm probably going to regret this one come Saturday night but I won't have a lot of confidence in it so I won't end up putting any actual money on this matchup regardless but I feel like the aggression forward movement and consistent takedown attempts here from Cody Durden could get his hand raised in this matchup again Charles Johnson a little bit too apprehensive at times with throwing his output since being in the UFC and that could bite him in the ass in this matchup just as it did in his fight against O'Day Osborne and just as it kind of did in the Zaugas zumagula fight a fight that a lot of people at that believed that Zhumagulov deserved to get his hand raised that night but with Durden we know we're going to get forward pressure we know we're going to get aggression we know we're going to get takedown attempts and even though Charles Charles Johnson has great takedown defense it's the fact that he'll more than likely be on the defensive for the vast majority of this matchup which makes me believe that Durden will do enough in the judges eyes to get his hand raised here. Again, I don't want to jump off the Charles Johnson train as I'm a big fan of the guy and when he's on, he is on and this is a matchup that he could absolutely do his work in terms of utilizing his jab, his footwork and his speed but I just feel that Durden is going to be on a mission here to put that forward pressure on him, drag him to the ground if he gets back up, just keep that pressure on him and keep it looking good for the judges so that he can win this fight by decision Official prediction, Cody Durden by decision not a whole lot of confidence on it though over two and a half, not a bad spot to target either for this matchup. Moving up to the men's lightweight division, we got eight and one Natan Levy going up against five and one Pete Deadgame Rodriguez. Starting off on the Natan Levy side, he's looking for his third straight victory this weekend as he's coming off a beautiful decision victory over Gennaro Valdez and obviously before that over Mike Breeden. We were seeing a huge evolution in Natan Levy's game and he's a guy that I was relatively low on earlier in his UFC career. Obviously he started his UFC career on a loss to Rafa Garcia in a somewhat back and forth fight that Garcia was able to take over in the latter half of that fight, but Levy comes out with a karate stance and showcases great kicks and good punches down the pipe, but when he feels like he needs to, he's able to drag fights into the grappling realm where he can stay safe, conserve his energy, and manage his gas tank properly. Because that's the one hole in his game that I've been harping on throughout his career. It seems like he doesn't know how to manage his gas tank the best, which allows fighters to take over in the latter half of fights. Even in fights that he ends up winning. He just seems like he's almost dead to rights at the end of fights, but he has done a very good job over his last couple fights to try to maintain that cardio and showcase that he can go the full 15 minutes if he needs to. A lot of that could be attributed to the fact that he changed camps after his Mike Breeden fight and decided to... Team up with the guys over there at Extreme Couture and they might be rounding out his game to the best of his abilities and try to exploit the physical attributes that Levy has as well as the actual mixed martial arts skills that he brings to the table. I love the strikes that he brings down the pipe with his karate stance, the kicks that he likes to implement from distance, but it's really that grapple heavy style that makes him so dominant against opponents and hopefully he can continue to utilize those types of uh, techniques to get his hand raised. That's something he'll likely have to lean on here against his opponent, Pete Rodriguez, who brings nothing but heavy power into the cage. He has five victories, all coming via knockout, but he did take a short notice spot against Jack Dallamadalena in a fight that he showed, or he was shown, that there are serious levels to this shit. That was uh, Jack Dallamadalena putting on a complete striking clinic against the powerhouse Pete Rodriguez, which caused Pete Rodriguez to eventually get knocked out in that matchup. Rodriguez managed to bounce back over a layup of a matchup against Mike Jackson, but there are not going to be many matchups for Rodriguez to have like the Mike Jackson matchup considering the level of opponents that he'll be going up against. That is exactly what he'll be facing this weekend when he goes up against Natan Levy. To Pete Rodriguez's credit, it seems like he's realized that and has joined forces with the guys over there at the MMA lab in Arizona. I'm curious to see how they will be able to mold this 26-year-old, try to harness that big power of his and see if he can bring it into something proper and put together a solid UFC run. I have my reservations about that though. I love honing in on these spots where we have guys that have been nothing but first-round killing machines in their regional tape and then when they finally make it to the UFC that's where they start to get exposed and i feel like this is a perfect matchup for natan levy to utilize his karate stance to stay away from the big power of pete rodriguez and then whenever he sees pete throwing that one of those big shots he'll be able to change levels and drag this fight to the ground yes of course there is going to be that chance where uh, pete rodriguez lands on him and puts his lights out that's possible in most fights however this is MMA and we got to take into consideration the vast amount of paths to victory that Natan Levy has in this matchup and how, you know, the 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 lack of ability for fighters like Pete Rodriguez to capitalize on their win condition at this level in MMA. We don't see it happen often. You know, there are guys that can do it, obviously more so at heavyweight compared to these lower weight classes, but I feel like Natan Levy is experienced enough, well-trained enough And disciplined enough to stay away from the big power of Pete Rodriguez, get this fight to the ground, and find a submission probably within the first six or seven minutes of this matchup. I love Natan Levy in this spot, and I think that he wins this fight with relative ease. Moving up to the heavyweight division, we got 11-1 Martin Budai going up against 13-8 Jake Collier. Starting off on the Budai side he made well actually this is going to be his third fight in the UFC I was going to say he made a successful UFC debut last time around but he's already picked up two victories inside the cage or inside the octagon the first of which coming against Chris Barnett and the second one coming against Lucas Dresky in a fight that a lot of people don't think he deserved uh the decision that night me being one of them especially as uh, considering the fact that I had some good money investing in Budai that night I was underwhelmed with his performance but I'm going to chalk it up to an anomaly considering the fact that I didn't play out how his fights normally play He goes out there, he roughs his opponents up in the clinch and he just really puts the work on them, eventually draining them of their gas tank and able to put them away late. That's what he was close to doing against Chris Barnett until he landed an illegal strike. Luckily, it was deep enough in the fight that they could have gone to a technical decision, which is when he was awarded that decision victory. Against Lucas Dresky, he tried the clinch at the beginning of that matchup, but didn't seem to like something, which is why he ended up deciding to strike with the better, I guess, technical strike that night and Lucas Dresky but Budai was able to tuck his chin move forward the entire time land some big shots and that's where it seemed like the judges were scoring that night compared to the consistent and more volume heavy approach from Lucas Dresky however I'm not willing to write off Budai after that one poor performance which he still ended up winning as I do think he can go back to that in future fights rough his opponents up in the clinch drag them to the ground put them through hell and do some good work from on top It's crazy how good his cardio is considering how big of a man he is and considering the fact that he used to be even bigger even before he started mixed martial arts. He started mixed martial arts to end up losing the weight and he's put together a pretty solid MMA career on the back end of that. I like his tight boxing and his great striking defense approach, especially with how he tucks his chin in so well behind his guard, and then he throws big strikes and makes every single one of them count when he lets his hands go. But don't get me wrong, he does his best work in the clinch, draining his opponents of their energy reserves, and then looking for that finish in the latter half of most of his fights. On the flip side for uh his opponent jake call here coming off a two-fight losing streak now we could probably say he should be one in one in his last two fights considering the andre Arlovski fight was a highly controversial decision a lot of people believe jake deserved at least two rounds in that matchup but it was not meant to be in his following matchup against chris barnett i believe that was back in november we saw him start to slow down a little bit he went for a desperation takedown ended up falling on his face Chris Barnett was able to get a dominant position start raining down big shots and we saw him get his hand raised by TKO that night it was a very poor performance from Jay Collier who was willing to throw down in the pocket in the early going of that matchup and then decided he needed to mix it up in the grappling realm in the clinch realm but it seemed like he just expended too much energy trying to get Chris Barnett out of there in the early goings of that matchup He came up short in his return at heavyweight, obviously, against Tom Aspinall. Everybody was looking to fade him in his following matchup against Gian Vellante. That's where I came to some notoriety amongst most people as I saw that Jake was still able to go out there and showcase some good work from his middleweight days up at heavyweight. He was able to pick up that win. He came up short in his following fight against Carlos Philippe and then pulled off a dominant submission victory over Chase Sherman after that. Since that Chase Sherman fight, it seems like he's trying to take a grapple-heavy approach in most of his matchups. I don't know how that's going to work out for him against the top of this heavyweight division, but for now, it might be enough for him to keep getting his hand raised. Based on the odds for this matchup and seeing that the love is coming in for Jake Collier to start pushing him to that minus 120 range, it seems to me that people are hopping off the Martin Buday train after one subpar performance. I'm not willing to do that yet. I'm going to give my guy the benefit of the doubt that the Dresky fight was just a weird one for him. I feel like he can have that success up against the cage here, against Jake Collier, something that Collier has been looking to do against most of his opponents, but I think that Budai is going to be the stronger fighter here in those positions. I think he's going to be the more durable fighter, and I think he'll have the better cardio that he can really start to put the pressure on Collier here and possibly even finish him in the last round of this matchup. Collier has shown he doesn't really have much off of his back and I wouldn't be surprised if Budai is able to secure takedowns in the second round of this matchup to really start doing work from that top position, putting his foot on the gas in the second and third round and getting my guy Jake out of there. You guys know me. You've been watching me long enough. You know I love me some Jake Collier. However, I feel like this is a bad matchup for him and I feel like Martin Budai is in a much better position place in his career to get a victory in this type of matchup which is why i'm going to take him i'm hoping that the money on collier continues to come in because i would love nothing more than to get my guy martin budai at plus odds in this matchup give me budai budai by finish probably in the second or third round of this fight sticking with the heavyweights we got 28 and one marcos Rogerio de lima going up against undefeated nine and zero waldo cortez acosta Starting off on the Dilema side, he's coming off a submission victory over Andrei Arlovsky. That was a very good performance for Dilema and showcases that his fight IQ is starting to grow even at this point in his career. We saw him have a, different, like, a couple different types of ways to win his fights over the last couple years now. Again, which is showing growth and maturity throughout his game. A lot of people just expected him to be that first round, you know, uh, first round uh, kill or get brought out on his shield kind of guy but it was that maurice green fight where we saw actually even before that the adam wizard chick fight where we saw him ground his opponent and grind him out winning that fight by decision he did the same thing to maurice green and he went back to his early finishing ways against ben rothwell the fight after that Against Blagoy Ivanov, he was unable to get that fight to the ground and succumbed to the pressure and, uh, you know, more output style of Blagoy Ivanov, who was able to stay in his face and keep that pressure on him. Against Andre Arlovsky, he took that fight to the ground almost immediately and eventually found his way to his back where he was able to get that submission, where Arlovsky, at this point in his career, it seems like he just takes the exit anytime anybody presents the door to him delima again if he can outstrike you and try to knock you out he's going to try to put that pressure on you if he feels he has a solid grappling advantage of you over you he's going to look to get you to the ground and grind you out with that heavy top pressure i still have question marks about his cardio but if he's going up against opponents that have difficulty in terms of knocking opponents out then i'm not so you know pestered in terms of looking to back delima in those types of spots His opponent this weekend is former LFA heavyweight champion Waldo Cortez Acosta, who earned his contract to the UFC after finishing Danilo Suzart on the Contender Series. I believe that was back in 2021. I could be wrong, that might even have been 2022, but regardless, it was a first-round stoppage that he was able to secure that night to get his hand raised. But in his following two fights, his UFC debut and his last fight against Jared Vandera and Chase Sherman, we saw him utilize an output-heavy approach where he just kept sticking his jab in his opponent's face and kept the punches coming behind that. It was his footwork, his movement that allowed him to stay away from the grappling or even the other strikes that were coming back his way from his opponents, but it was that output and just that consistent jab he kept sticking in their face that allowed him to get his hand raised. This former MLB player who had a cup of coffee with the Cincinnati Reds unfortunately took a season-ending or career-ending elbow surgery which saw him leave the baseball world, pick up the MMA gloves and boxing gloves and change on over to the combat sports world. It's worked out for him thus far in the MMA world, but I believe that there are going to be some flaws in his game that will be exposed at this UFC level, especially with his grappling game. We saw his title winning performance against Thomas Peterson, where Peterson had great success in the first two rounds with his grappling, with his clinching, and with his wrestling. Unfortunately for Peterson, it seemed like his cardio was starting to fall backwards, which is why Waldo was able to knock him out in that third round and win the title but against better conditioned opponents or fighters that will likely be able to keep Cortez Acosta down for longer periods of time, that's where Cortez Acosta may end up coming up short. But I love his output style. I love his cardio. I love his movement. I look forward to seeing if he continues to make improvements throughout his game, but we'll see how he does against the upper echelon of the heavyweight division, something he'll be fighting in the very near future. There was a time where I probably would have picked Walu Cortez Acosta and didn't even think twice about it. However, I gotta give DeLima some credit. Like I said, he's been maturing a lot throughout his career, which makes me believe that he knows that his best success to winning this fight is dragging this fight to the mat and roughing his opponent up from that top position. Thomas Peterson, like I said, had that type of success against Cortez Acosta about a year ago, but I feel like DeLima will have better success in terms of holding a guy like Cortez Acosta to to the ground compared to the lack of success that Peterson had in that realm uh even in the stand-up realm I believe Cortez Acosta will have a speed advantage and he'll have the output advantage here but dealing with the big shots that are coming back his way not to mention the kicks that uh DeLima is going to be landing here and the lack of checking from the Cortez Acosta side he could damage Cortez Acosta pretty badly on the feet here and then eventually drag this to the ground make it look good for the judges and take home a decision victory. I like Lima in this spot to pull off the upset. Seems like the public is loving it as well because I believe this fight was closer to a pick Last time I checked, it was minus 150 to Lima. I wouldn't be surprised if that line continues to rise. However, there should be a point where we'll be like, hey... And this line is probably too much now, especially considering the fact that De Lima still has a very sketchy gas tank and Cortez Acosta seems to have a very good gas tank for a fighter of his stature, especially in the heavyweight division. But I'm still going to go with De Lima here. I think he'll exploit the grappling advantage he has in this matchup and win it via decision. Next up in the featherweight division, we got 28-10 and 10, Julian Arosa going up against 14-4 and 4, UFC newcomer Fernando Paldilla. Starting off on the Arosa side, he's coming off of getting knocked out clean by Alex Bruce Leroy Caceres back in December. That was a fight where both unorthodox strikers were looking for ways to knock each other out, but it was Caceres that set up a beautiful head kick that landed halfway through that fight that ended Julian Arosa's night. That snapped a three-fight winning streak that Arosa had built up, getting wins over Charles Jourdain, Steven Peterson, and Hakeem Dawadu. Most of those fights he ended up being the underdog in. The Hikim Dewadu one was the most impressive, as a lot of people thought the disciplined striking approach of Dawadu would be too much for the unorthodox striking style of Arosa, but it ended up being the complete other way around, as Dawadu could not get a beat on the long lengthy striking from the unorthodox Julian Arosa, and Arosa was able to put the numbers on him, getting his hand raised by decision that night. Unfortunately, Caceres snapped that winning streak, as I said, but that just showcases that Julian Arosa has had a pretty roller coaster career. He's 28-10 and and this is actually his third stint with the UFC. This is the best he's looked since being with the UFC as he's put together a 5-2 record over his last 7 fights. He looks to be in the best form of his career even after he's coming off of a loss in his last matchup and he'll always be a very difficult out for most opponents given his length, reach and awkward style at this weight class. Padilla is the former featherweight champion for Fury FC and he originally signed with the promotion back in 2021. Unfortunately, visa issues have kept him out of competition, but it seems like he's managed to get his ducks in a row and will be making the walk this weekend. similar to Julian Rosa he's a long lanky striker who likes to utilize footwork and utilize that long jab that he has down the middle to keep his opponents at bay and then unleash the rest of his strikes behind that it was a beautifully placed elbow in his last matchup against Cameron Graves that put Cameron Graves on his butt and put his lights out which earned Padilla that Fury FC title Padilla also has a BJJ brown belt under the 10th planet system but his head coach is Colin Oyama who has been the coach of one of the you know higher level fighters that we've seen in the ufc also a coach that doesn't really get as much recognition as the other coaches like the greg jacksons and the Farazahabis, hobbies but definitely earns it considering how long he's been around the game getting back to padilla i like his style of striking and he seems to have some decent experience on his record even before getting that fury ufc title he has losses to Spike Carlisle and Dan Ige from earlier in his career, as well as a victory over Derek Minner back, um, I believe, at LFA 25 or LFA 30. I could be off on the number there, but it was in the earlier days of the LFA. Uh, Padilla has been fighting for a while now, even though he's 26 years old. I believe he made his debut back in 2016 when he was only 19 years old, and it looks like all that experience is trying to make it, uh, make it put together a very good uh, fighter here. But we'll see if he's actually ready for this uh, step up in competition against Julian Arosa, and whether this layoff will actually have a big impact on him. And this is a tricky matchup. Now, these are the types of guys that normally give Julian Arosa trouble long lanky guys that are able to take advantage of his poor striking defense but the step up in competition and the long layoff for Padilla and not to mention the UFC debut which you know we've seen a lot of high level fighters in the past slip up in their debut because they're not ready for that you know the bright lights or even the fact that they have UFC on their glove I don't think they're ready for that you know Daniel Zellhuber is a perfect example of a guy who slipped up against a guy like Trey Ogden but then had a solid performance against a guy like Lando Venata in his second matchup. That could be it for Fernando Padilla in this spot. Julian Arosa is susceptible to getting knocked out. It's absolutely possible. But it could work out for him in the opposite way as well, where he could be able to find a big shot on Padilla and put him down. So the way that I'd be looking at this is possibly violence. Fight doesn't go to decision. Both guys have some technical striking deficiencies in terms of their defense, and I think that either guy could take advantage of it. I'm going to lean Arosa ever so slightly, given the the amount of experience he has against high-level competition. His just, you know, making a home in the UFC octagon at this point, And then possibly even just a layoff for the Padilla side again, though. Don't forget that Arosa is also coming off a knockout from December. Could loom heavy in this matchup for him as well. I'm not touching this fight myself. Maybe a little bit on the fight doesn't go to decision. Outside of that, I want nothing to do with it. But you guys want a prediction for me. I'm going to go Julian Arosa inside the distance. Maybe even a choke that he can pull off as well. Give me Julian Arosa. Moving up to the middleweight division, we got 8-2 Rodolfo Vieira going up against 8-3 Cody Brundage. Starting off on the Vieira side, he's coming off of a loss to Chris Curtis in his last matchup. That was a fight where we saw him go 0-20 on takedown attempts, which showcases that he still probably needs to work on his wrestling game. Or we can credit Chris Curtis for having damn good takedown defense as well. Vera tried showcasing a different wrinkle to his game in his fi- fight against Dustin Stolzfus before that, as he didn't shoot a single takedown in the fight, uh, in the first round of that fight, just showcasing that he can just throw one twos down the middle and bide his time waiting for that opportunity to shoot the takedown. That's exactly what he did, that, the first thing he did in the second round against Dustin Stolzfus, and he was eventually in the third round that he was able to get that submission victory. We all know Yura is a super high-level BJJ black belt, and that's really the only kind of weapon that he has in his arsenal. He still needs to work on his striking game, he still needs to work on his wrestling game, but if he's able to get the fight to the ground, most or often than not, or more often than not, his opponent is usually in trouble. On the flip side with Cody Brundage who's coming off of a loss to Mihal Oleg Shejok who fights in the co-main event of this card. Brundage is also a guy who seems to have really slowed down from the potential a lot of people expected from him earlier in his career. He comes in with a wrestling background but hasn't been able to use it effectively enough to end up getting his wins. He came up short against Nick Maximov in his short notice UFC debut where he got grinded out over 15 minutes. He followed that up with two chaotic wins over Dolce Lungi and Bula where he was able to get a guillotine choke after both guys had tremendous success hurting each other and then he followed that up with a knockout victory over Trishon Gore and that Gore fight he unsuccessfully got was uh, unsuccessful in terms of getting that fight to the ground and then it looked like he was really starting to run out of gas but luckily ran into that beautiful punch that allowed him to get that knockout victory over Gore his next fight against Oleg Shajak, he landed a takedown pretty quickly, but was unable to do enough damage or even control that position long enough, which allowed Oleg Shajuk to reverse the position and get a TKO victory of his own. Brundage really relies on getting takedowns, but his control, not the greatest, and I think that's where he could end up struggling at this level in the UFC. Even though Cody Brundage will likely have the wrestling advantage, technically speaking, in this matchup, I feel that Adolfo Vieira could still find his way to get this fight to the ground. Obviously, Brundage wants nothing to do with his Brazilian jiu-jitsu, so he's going to have to trust his hands to try to knock out Adolfo Vieira in this spot. However, I think after he overextends on one of those big punches, that's going to open up an opportunity for Vieira to drag this fight to the ground, where he'll have massive success and eventually find the neck of uh, Cody Brundage and take it on home with him. I see Vieira as a very big favorite in this spot. And, you know, there is some hesitancy on my side to pay that chalk, which is why you might even be able to take the fight doesn't go to decision because I think that he is aggressive enough on the mat that he'll eventually be able to find that neck. And on the flip side, in case Cody Brundage is able to keep this fight upright, maybe his knockout power comes through for him here and he's able to put Vieira out. But I'm going to go with the Brazilian and I think he snatches the neck of Cody Brundage this weekend and gets this win by submission. Heading over to the co-main event of the evening, we got thirteen and one Kyle Bohayo going up against eighteen and five Mihal Oleg Shejik. Starting off on the Bohayo side, who's on a pretty impressive streak right now. He's actually won three straight, or sorry, two straight victories on the uh, UFC level. Actually, it's three straight victories, considering that he won two fights on the contenders race, the second of which uh, earned him his UFC contract. But since then, he's been putting on great grappling performances against Omar Gadziev, um, Arman Petrosian, and Mahmoud Murdov back in October. Kaio showcases a very solid karate stance whenever he's striking, allowing him to dart in and out of range, landing his shots and getting back out before his opponents are able to land much effective counters on him. But it seems like he does his best work when he's able to drag fights to the ground and grind his opponents out from on top. He has a very good jujitsu game and he trains out of a camp called the Fight Nerds, which is a perfect name and perfect camp for him to be a part of concerning the approach that he takes to MMA. If I'm not mistaken he also commentates for a couple of the uh, regional MMA promotions down there in Brazil which showcases that he really takes an analytical approach to his fighting style which has allowed him to be so successful to this point. He knows the weaknesses of his opponents and he knows how to utilize the grappling approach to effectively dominate his opponents and keep them on the mat. You see him doing the small things like looking to take the base out of his opponent or grabbing on to the far side arm that's looking to post for his opponent so that he can disrupt their balance and keep them on the mat. I always thought he had a little bit of a gas tank issue, but he's been proving me wrong as he's had some solid third rounds over his last couple fights. He looks like a guy with some solid potential, especially with that 13-1 and record. I would keep my eye on him. Switching on over to his opponent, Michal Oleg Shejcik finally made his middleweight debut a couple fights back, a weight class many people expected him to have competed at given his smaller frame that he had at 205. Even at 205 pounds, he still managed to have some success against much bigger opponents, but after losing a decision to Dustin Jacoby, he decided to drop down a couple months later against Sam Alvey, and it has paid off for him to this point. Knocking out Sam Alvey with relative ease, he followed that up with a beautiful performance against Cody Brundage, where one, he showcased the flaw of his still, which is his takedown defense, but he showcased that he can remain patient, wait for his opportunity, find the reversal and then lay down big ground and pound from that top position which is how he ended up getting his hand raised that night at his best, Mihail Oleg Shajik stalks his opponent with very rudimentary footwork as he just marches them down. He doesn't try to cut any angles. He doesn't try to, you know, set any traps. He moves forward. He throws in bunches. He digs to the body often, which normally slows his opponents down. And then he tries to find that big shot up top to put his opponents down. But it seems like he fights the same way he does in minute one as he does his minute 15, which is constant forward pressure and output. It seems like the ground game is still the weakness throughout his career, which is what has led to the majority of his losses, and I look forward to seeing how he deals with grapple-heavy fighters as he, keeps, as he continues to take steps up this middleweight division. This seems like a pretty straightforward fight and the last time I checked the odds, minus 300 on Kyle Bahayo makes absolute sense. We saw how easy it was for Brundage to get the fight to the ground against Oleg Shajuk. Luckily for Bahayo though, I believe Bahayo has much better control on top than what Cody Brundage showed. So I think he'll be able to get Oleg Shejuk to the mat here and I think he'll be able to grind on him. And I wouldn't even be surprised if he submitted him. My official prediction is going to be by decision, but... It's going to take a long approach here from Bahayu to wear down Oleg Shajak. Might open up that submission opportunity, like I said, but I think he's worth the chalk in this spot. I think he takes that neck on home with him. Uh, actually, you know what? Uh, I'm going to go with decision. I'm going to give Oleg Shajuk the benefit of the doubt here that he might be able to survive on the mat, maybe do enough to maybe work back to his feet a couple of times, but I think Bahayu will continuously get him to the mat, grind him out, win this fight by decision. And that brings us to our main event of the evening. It is a bantamweight matchup between Song Yudong, who comes in with a 19-7-1 record, going up against 20-3 Ricky Simone starting off on the Song Yedong side and just a reminder that this matchup was actually scheduled for last week's card as the co-main event but after Hanata Moikano had to fall out I believe yeah Hanata Moikano fell out and they were unable to secure a replacement for Armand Sarukian they decided to grab the co-main event and bring it to the main event slot for this card which is why these guys now have to fight potentially another two rounds. That's nothing new for Song Yudong as he had a main event slot in his last matchup which he ended up coming up short in against Corey Sanhagen. He had a very solid I believe it was first or second round but Corey Sandhagen started to take over and Song Yudong looked to be slowing down a tad but it was ultimately a cut that he suffered in the second round of that fight which caused the fight to be ended before the fifth round began. Song Yudong is a much different fighter since joining the UFC and you can see that work that he's been putting in at Team Alpha Male is very much paying off for him. From that very stellar takedown defense that he has showcased to that big power striking approach that he likes to utilize, he's become a very difficult opponent for a lot of fighters to deal with at this bantamweight division. At his best, he's able to keep fights in the upright position, march his opponents down with big strikes and find that knockout. He's throwing in combinations, uh, which is something different compared to what he did at the early stages of his career, but he was very young coming into the UFC and at 25 years old now with over 28 fights of experience under his belt, this guy is primed to be in the top five of this bantamweight division. I love the takedown defense and I love his aggressiveness in terms of trying to put his opponents on their back foot the majority of his career or for the majority of their fights. It was the Casey Kenny matchup that was most impressive to me as he was able to stop the majority of takedowns and march down Casey Kenney, landing the more significant strikes to get his hand raised by decision that night. It's the long awkward strikers like Corey Sandhagen and Kyler Phillips that seem to give Song Yudong the most issues, but we'll see how he deals with other fighters that don't have that style as that's not really a, a very popular style within this pantomite division. It's mainly relegated to those guys. On the flip side for Ricky Simone here, he's on a very good run after dropping that fight to Uriah Faber a couple years back. We saw Ricky Simone get knocked out in I believe it was uh, yeah, 46 seconds against Uriah Faber back in July of 2019. That was followed up by another loss against Rob Font where he got completely outstruck even after landing 6 takedowns in that matchup and he ended up losing a decision that night. But he's followed up with five straight victories over Ray Borg, Gaetano Perello, Brian Kelleher, Hafiella Sunsell, and most recently handing Jack Shore the first loss of his professional career. That was a night where Ricky Simone landed a beautiful shot to drop Jack Shore and he followed that up with a beautiful arm triangle choke to secure, secure that club and sub-victory. Simone is making tremendous improvements at this point in his career but make no doubt about it the best part of his game is his takedowns and his ability to control opponents on the mat. My question comes when he starts fighting better strikers because he had issues taking Jack Shore down. He completed two takedowns that night, but was unable to control him for long periods of time on the mat. He was struggling up against the cage against him, and his striking seems to be that wrestle heavy striking style that we normally see, which is a lot of crashing the pocket with explosive big overhand hooks. But against a better technical striker, we saw that didn't work out like when he fought Rob Font. So how far can the style and improvements take Ricky Simone? He has a very tough test ahead of him this weekend, and we'll definitely find out if he has what it takes to take on the top of this division if he can get his hand raised this weekend. I've been trying to think how these extra two rounds are going to impact this matchup. Anybody that watched my episode last week, you guys saw that I picked Song to win this fight by knockout, and I think that the extra two rounds may not have that much of an impact on the result of this fight, changing from how I expected it to go the first time around. I expect Simone to land some takedowns but I think he's going to struggle in terms of keeping a guy like Song down but Song is going to have to find that knockout within the first three rounds because I think after that his knockout power will start to dwindle to the extent that Ricky Simone will be able to crash that pocket and continuously drag the fight to the ground. How good is Ricky Simone's cardio against a guy that is going to continuously get up for the first 12 to 15 minutes of this fight and put the pressure on him with the big punches? That remains to be seen, but this is going to be a stiff compet- or a stiff test for Ricky Simone. Normally, I go with a heavy grappler, especially a guy that's on the roll like Ricky Simone is. However... I think the defensive grappling improvements that we've seen from Song Yudong throughout his career is going to come back for him this weekend, just like it did against Casey Kenny, which will allow him to open up potential knockout opportunities that his head coach was able to take advantage of Uriah Faber when he knocked out Ricky Simone a couple years back. Maybe Song Yudong replicates that this weekend. That's what my prediction is going to be. I'm going to go with Song as the underdog here to get the knockout. Let's call it round two and that's a wrap on the breakdowns appreciate everybody checking out the episode as always we're at episode 201 i said this week i might do something uh you know just to commemor- commemorate episode 200 which was the last bellator podcast i still figuring out a way that i can do that but again i just always want to show my appreciation to everybody that has stuck it out with your boy for, over these last five years appreciate every single one of you guys you guys are amazing hit that like Hit that subscribe if you haven't already. Last weekend's percentage was 46% of the viewers had not hit subscribe. Please hit that subscribe. It's so easy. We're so close to 6,000. It would mean so much for me if we hit that 6,000 mark. Anyways, appreciate you guys. I'll be back later this week. Like I said, Thursday for uh, the Lockheed Trinity, Friday for... Uh, the three best prop bets and then also on the patreon uh we got cage warriors cage warriors going down saturday afternoon i have every single fight broken down for you guys a lock of the night play a dog of the night play and a ton of other great things the last cage warriors card we hit a plus 600 underdog will we find another one this weekend well there's only one way to find out check out the patreon link in the description below all right love you guys appreciate you guys i'll see you guys on thursday peace thing.